things I could not pretend. So I exist in this wasteland. A man reduced to a single instinct. Survive. Welcome to episode 10 of An Invitation to the Invitation a limited chronological deep dive of the 2015 suspense drama written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi and directed by Karin Kasama. I'm your host, Jim Panola. On this show, I start by reading a scene or scenes from the original script, followed by an analysis of those scenes, subsequently discussing the differences between the screenplay and the final cut of the film, ideally shedding light on all the unique components that contribute to the movie and how each of those elements fit into the greater thematic ideas of the story. Let's begin with a reading of pages 61 through 65, picking up after Will's quiet but intense internal breakdown at dinner, leading him to wander the house alone, where he observed Sadie creepily making faces to herself. As Will began to walk away from the strange sight, Sadie followed. Let's begin. Exterior Backyard. Night. Will comes out onto the patio, looking out. He pulls out his phone, watches its display for a moment, moves it around. Still no service. Behind him, Sadie steps out onto the deck. So, things aren't great with Kiara, huh? He laughs, surprised. (laughs) I don't... Why would you say that? It just seems like that to me. Seems like she's real distant. She's great. Sadie nods. Should we go back inside? She smiles, enjoying whatever she's toying with in her head. I'm going to try to make a call. I'll see you in there. Oh, well, good luck. There's no service up here. She moves closer to him. I could hang with you. Abruptly, she leans toward him, puts the palm of her hand on the inside of his thigh. She whispers can fuck me right here. Will looks at her as if he's unsure he's actually heard this. What? Nobody will care. We're not like that. It's a gift. Why should we deny that ever? Especially not tonight. As she speaks, she's absently brushing her fingertips across the thin fabric of her skirt. It's the way we were in Mexico, man. It was awesome. People were just going for it. I think you should go inside. She leans forward, lips opening. It's an electric moment. She gets close to his lips. He holds her away by the shoulders. You don't like me? I don't know you. I can make you like me so much. I can make you beg me. I can do it without even touching you. Sadie. Just with my With my breath. You can hurt me if you want. I don't want to do that. She smiles. I don't believe you. She goes in. He takes a breath. Exterior, backyard. A rustling noise below. Will looks up at the sky. It's nothing but darkness. A shape rises behind him. 
It's Tommy. Will, surprised, recoils. <gasps> what are you doing out here? I just needed a break. Oh, really? From what? Will makes an indistinct gesture with his hand. Not following. Tommy, there's something wrong here. Something bad is happening. Will. Tommy looks at him, sympathetic but firm. You're wrong, and I know what you're going to say, but listen. Claire went home because the poor girl is sexually awkward. Choi might be the most unreliable Korean in Los Angeles. He could be anywhere. Eden? I haven't seen her in two years, and that feels crazy, but I don't know. We're all just trying to figure out how to go on, you know? This is how they do it. Yeah, everything is weird. It's life. It doesn't feel safe here. I know it doesn't. Look, it took a lot of courage for you to come here tonight, but this isn't good for you anymore. I think you need to go home. Will doesn't respond. I'm sorry, Will, but enough is enough. You know very well why things feel unsafe for you here. We all do. You know sometimes your mind runs away with you. Look, I love you, but stop acting so fucking weird. It's freaking people out. What do you want me to do? Okay, here's what you have. You've got a woman in there who's worth it. That's why we allowed you to go out with her. You can't just put anyone into this. She's up to it. So what do I want? I want you to start living again. Will nods. He gives Tommy a reluctant smile. Oh, that's all. You're safe now. Tommy gives him a hug and walks back inside, leaving Will alone. Will takes a moment, breathes. Okay. Loud, startlingly, his phone chirps. He looks at it. The most tenuous of signals. One new message. He presses the button. We hear the rustling sound again from below. Will listens to the message. Will. Choi. What's up? Listen, it's about seven. I'm just pulling up to Eden's house. I forgot to pick up dessert like I said I would. And I can't get a hold of Gina. Would you be able to pick some up on your way? I know I'm early. Dude, I'm actually early. But honestly, I don't want to go back down the hill and look for a fucking patisserie. See you here in a few, I guess. I'm going in. Will hangs up the phone. He looks stunned, frightened. Choi was there. Slowly, Will walks back inside toward the dining room. This is a fun series of scenes. Fun is probably the wrong word. They're an interesting and gratifying series of scenes. A lot seems to happen in a short amount of time, so let's get right to it. While it's a small aesthetic shift, more than anything, the slight change of location from patio in the script to pool in the film is notable if for no other reason than the way it fundamentally alters the consistent color palette we've seen thus far. Temporarily gone are the warm ambers, dull crimsons, and earth tones of the house's interior, replaced by an encompassing luminous blue at the character's feet. It's almost like a visual breath of fresh air before 
diving back into the overwhelming stimulus and density of the party. But even in exterior scenes, Kasama carefully maintains the claustrophobia by shooting Will and Sadie's dialogue in intimate, high-angle close-up. It's intentionally uncomfortable because it extends the power dynamics of trying to break down people's boundaries, like in the I Want game from earlier. Sadie is plainly, stridently entering Will's personal space while making wild, unfounded assertions about his relationship with his partner Kira. Compare that to the eye-level blocking of Will and Tommy's interaction immediately after, suggesting the mutual compassion each has for the other, suggesting the lack of condescension between them that comes from knowing each other for years and years. Most, if not all, of Will's outdoor, backyard contemplations have been solo ventures, whether it's getting wood for the fire and the party, or just escaping the din of the party. And these moments of solitude seem to at least temporarily calm him, if not placate him completely. So when Sadie shows up, her mere presence already a type of neutral chaos, she inherently adds a level of anxiety to the moment. Will only seconds earlier saw her inexplicably making faces at herself in the mirror, seemingly playing an unsettling game with herself. If Will wasn't immediately put off by her at the film's start, he certainly is now. Speaking of which, this scene by the pool finally pays off Sadie's disturbingly sexy or, or sexily disturbing introduction. As you might recall, when she first appeared in the movie, she was standing almost completely nude in a doorway of the house, quietly making eye contact with Will before they'd even met. David introduced her to the party shortly thereafter. But Kasama would continue to drop in moments of Sadie making eyes at Will, which seems to be another small but significant deviation from the script, which doesn't explicitly contain these nonverbal cues. Kasama knows how well these characters illustrate the persistent push-pull of the story's two main cliques, and by slowly building it up in the background, it feels properly motivated when Sadie finally acts on it at the pool with Will. The attempted seduction by Sadie ends up being a bookend to the I Want Party game. In some ways, I Want and its wholesale dismissal of boundaries was the necessary setup for Sadie to brazenly try and get Will to abandon his monogamous relationship with Kira. The I Want game occurs as more of a means of control and manipulation when David directs it. But with Sadie, we see how the game has more direct connotations and applications, while still possessing aspects of power and control, of course. Thankfully, and consistent with the character and performance, Will resists with zero hesitation. You can sense his own ability to see through Sadie's go-for-broke attitude, as she even tries to adapt and appeal to Will's unabashed distaste for her. It's a powerful scene because after an abundance of characters apologizing and trying to keep up appearances and not ruffle feathers, it's like the masks are finally off. Sadie essentially demands her wants in clear, indelicate terms while Will aggressively rebuffs them with no attempt or reason to be socially acceptable. 
That radical honesty, if you will, becomes cathartic after wall-to-wall scenes of guests carefully navigating a social minefield. So, as tense as Will and Sadie's interaction at the pool is, there's still some measure of release and exhalation as we witness the outcome of the characters' palpable disdain and desire for each other. Like positive and negative ions, there's an instinctual attraction between the two. Think back to Will's gaze just naturally falling on Sadie in more than one private moment. But that attraction is paradoxically undercut by their fundamentally conflicting personalities and outlooks. Almost as a chaser to the bitter, antagonistic tone of Will and Sadie's verbal parrying at the pool, the film presents a supportive, if urgent, conversation between real, genuine friends, Tommy and Will. On repeat viewings of the film, we can recognize in Will and Tommy's tough but fair exchange that Will was right, or is right, and has a right to be suspicious, yet I think this scene specifically has less to do with the idea that, quote, sometimes people are out to get you, as Kasama put it in her DGA interview, and more to do with the undeniable content of Tommy's short speech. Or at least that's what stays with me. Nearly everything he says is accurate and can't entirely be refuted. Claire is sexually awkward. Choi is chronically late. Everything is weird. These are all true statements. I think what makes the scene sore and separates it from similar ones is the way it highlights how lucid both Will and Tommy are, even if their emotions or points of view aren't exactly aligned. Similarly, Kasama directs it as an honest conversation between two close and dear friends, not as an argument or shouting match, but as a quiet, emotional plea. So many films could be categorized as being preoccupied with grand notions of love and death, and the invitation is no different, it's not exempt from this, but this scene is a standout because it takes a detour from those themes, from that archetype, and leans into an underrated, oft-ignored narrative theme, which is friendship. And the friendship between Will and Tommy feels remarkably lived in and authentic here, which allows for a level of love and honesty we simply haven't really seen until now. By contrast, think back to Will and Eden's interactions thus far. They're polite, but so dense with baggage that a truly healing conversation is impenetrable under the circumstances. Think about Will and Ben, true friends that bring out each other's lightness, but that shared sense of humor simultaneously acting as a barrier. Think about Will and Gina, again, a palpable love and respect, but the two lacking the vocabulary to have a fully rounded discussion or conversation. Tommy and Will might disagree, but even with the benefit of hindsight and repeat viewings, the invitation is never explicitly about punishing or belittling those who didn't back Will or agree with him, or didn't rise to his level of discomfort. Though I fully admit that the argument could be made, not unlike the trope of the virgin or virgins living through slasher flicks, that those who weren't seduced by the party and its hosts were the ones to pay the ultimate price for it. Even if that is the case, it's ancillary to the fact that the film is, for the millionth time, about how easy 
and therefore how potentially dangerous it is to slip into the routine of social niceties and the repression of self that can so quickly follow. Through the lens of horror and genre, Kasama uses an extreme context to convey how this norm not only dulls our sense of self-preservation, but self-care as well. For an example, look no further than the last episode, when Will's attempt to emotionally brute force his way through the dinner resulted in his most intense breakdown yet, even if it was his most invisible and quiet. Unfortunately, I think the term self-care has been hollowed out by shallow influencer culture, inundating people with imagery of poolside brunch and weekend cocktails, which to be clear is fine. The only point I'm trying to make is that the phrase is hard to take seriously anymore for this reason, when it should just as easily be shorthand for objectively more valuable actions like attending therapy. Said another way, Will's heightened awareness via his suffering does allow him to be more sensitive to insincere politeness and manners, as well as call people out on that behavior. More on that in the next episode, though. But those traits are arguably incidental to the insidious plot. It's almost like the filmmakers made Will the protagonist because his grief-fueled overreactions just happened to coincide with the sinister motivations beneath the surface. Not because Will has superpowers. His ability to survive the night is kind of an accident, and this makes the film far scarier and far more frightening because he just narrowly avoids death, arguably by chance. But the subtext is clear. Horrible as the symptoms of grief are, they're excruciating signs of life, that we're still alive and therefore have the opportunity to one day thrive in the future. But when we're in mourning, the social minutiae that perhaps once felt important dissolves and is replaced by the need for survival, by any means of getting up and getting through the day. This is why I included the opening voiceover from George Miller's Mad Max Fury Road at the beginning of the episode, because Tom Hardy's Max is experiencing the same feelings as Logan Marshall Green's Will. Forget that one movie is a post-apocalyptic action masterpiece and the other's a modern suspense drama, and forget that the two actors look like twins, (laughs) and think about how Max and Will are both so haunted by guilt that their demons have stripped them of any real ability to connect with people or any real ability to connect with themselves for that matter max is essentially a grunting animalistic drifter borderline nonverbal and aggressively solitary will is a grieving paranoiac with little interest in others even his closest friends and loving partner their perceived failures have traumatized them, left them with no purpose outside of blind survival. Quote, So I exist in this wasteland, reduced to one instinct, survive. End quote. That's grief, or at least one definition of it. Whereas Max finds purpose and finds a true reason to live by the end of Fury Road, the invitation's timetable is limited to a single evening, 
so we frankly don't know where Will ends up or if he ever finds an empowering reason to go on. His arc, or lack thereof, is fascinatingly limited to his survival. What starts as a more cerebral test of Will's wits becomes an intensely visceral contest of messy brutality and physicality. It's weird to think that the franchise that defined cinematic post-apocalypse isn't as bleak as the movie about the world's worst dinner party, but at least thematically speaking, this might be true. The -the over-the-top desert factions of Mad Max, replaced by the invitations painfully banal and recognizable, disturbingly human devils. Those devils at least starting to reveal themselves now, like Sadie at the pool. Though, as we near the film's final act, the parallels between the two core cliques, the old friends versus the invitation posse of Eden, David, Sadie Pruitt, become clearer and clearer. Last episode, I made the argument that Will and Sadie are inversions of each other, two opposing but inextricable responses to the oppression of grief, both linked by an apparent need to suppress the full spectrum of their emotions, Will pretending he's okay at dinner and Sadie pretending for the fun of it. It wouldn't be a stretch to extend this notion to the groups each character represents. Will's friends are repressing some of their instincts in the name of being agreeable, but ultimately passive guests. We've already seen them react with disdain to some of Eden and David's behavior, but they're clearly choosing to stick it out for the duration, with the exception of Claire, of course. Conversely, Eden, David, Sadie, and Pruitt are fully self-expressed to the point of obliterating personal boundaries, to the point that they're toxically casting aside their trauma, to the point that they're dulling their humanity. They're of course hiding their agenda, but even if there wasn't a sinister motive to their actions, I would still argue that their pretense is convincing themselves they've healed by virtue of ignoring their grief and sense of loss. In short, each party is guilty of their own form of lethal repression. As Karin Kasama says, denial is the real tyranny. Going back to Tommy and Will for a minute. Tommy's original dialogue from today's scene, as written, is both lengthier and meaner, in a way. For example, Tommy, in the screenplay, outright tells Will he thinks he should go home. The script still makes their friendship obvious, and includes interesting details like the fact that Tommy and Miguel set up Will with Kira, but it kind of villainizes Will. Not that that's even an inherently bad or poor choice, But compared to the final film, the original exchange is more of a terse scolding versus the kind plea of the movie, wherein Tommy comes off as loving above all, even if he's mildly harsh at times. Even when he says, I love you, Will. You gotta stop acting so fucking weird. It's freaking people out. He couches it in a laugh. The simple addition of Tommy saying, I'll see you back inside. Before walking away, does volumes in terms of conveying and multiplying the warmth and compassion rather than a curt indictment or reprimand, which changes the entire dynamic of the scene and characters, or at least enhances it. At first glance, these changes seem cosmetic, 
but by not settling and by being as precise as possible with all of Will's relationships, not just the obvious ones, the results radiate outward, forging a rich, implied tapestry of community that shows and suggests how significant Will is to every guest at the party, to every friend. Again, these details may seem small, but it's the difference between a film that could have just been about estranged spouses and a film that is about being estranged from all the people you love and who love you, your ex, your friends, your current partner. Because that's what grief does, or at least what it can do. It doesn't discriminate. All of our communities are fair game to be alienated from us or by us, which ultimately makes the invitation more believable, realistic, affecting, and relatable as a result. Between Kasama's consistently assured direction, Plummy Tucker's muscular editing, and the tangible warmth between Mike Doyle as Tommy and Marshall Green as Will, this short but sweet conversation between friends is a sleeper for one of the film's best scenes. Doyle's demeanor is just so effortless and affable, for starters. He's a perfect fit for the role, and the chemistry he shares with Marshall Green is so clearly representative of the off-screen friendships that were created within the cast during production. It's easy to overlook this part of the movie since there are no grand verbal fireworks, nor is there any violence, but it lingers and becomes increasingly memorable, not only because of the way it acts as a gentle, even comforting reprieve before the film reaches its horrifying terminal velocity, but because of the way it displays a mature, loving, honest friendship between two adults. I can't think of many films that do this at all, and the ones that do tend to make a feature-length joke out of it. I Love You Man comes to mind, and I say that as a fan of that movie. Which is probably indicative of a discussion around male vulnerability that is too deep and too tangential to get into right now. The point being that the invitation puts in the work to unapologetically be a movie for grown-ups, while not sacrificing the genre horror trappings that simultaneously make it so thrilling and enjoyable. With the invitation's lead character so deliberately out of sync with his peers, and potentially the film's audience, the importance of a character like Tommy, especially his on-screen iteration, can't be overstated, because he functions as an easy proxy for viewers and that he's not unstable, nor is he overly aggressive or eccentric. He's completely level-headed and approachable. In other words, an ideal friend and confidant. He's a lighthouse for Will, shining a path for him. Tommy can't walk the path for Will, but he can at least reveal the way, which he does or tries to. And he seems to break through somewhat, not by condescending or lecturing, but by remaining calm, transparent, empathetic. Another small but significant change from script to screen comes in the form of Tommy hugging Will, then telling him he's safe, unlike the screenplay which swaps the order. This might seem like a neutral, lateral choice, but by having Tommy going in for the hug first, it suggests, along with the tighter, more minimal dialogue between them, that Tommy's more interested in showing affection, as opposed to just pontificating. As I'm sure many would agree, when you're having a vulnerable conversation with a friend, sometimes listening in attentive silence or showing physical signs of empathy and listening can do more than canned verbal acknowledgement. 
Leading with physical signs of affection deepens the verbal ones. I'm citing a lot of tiny differences in this episode, but when observing how all these choices accumulate in a short amount of time, they're suddenly not so tiny. However, one point that's objectively huge is Choi's voicemail. True to the alternating pattern of the invitation and its structure, as soon as Will, and by extension the audience, is assured that his paranoia is overblown and exaggerated, the writers immediately follow that short respite with a highly suggestive piece of hard evidence. Choi, conspicuously absent for the entire film, the elephant not in the room, in his own words, reveals that he arrived at Eden and David's house early, in a voicemail that was finally received by Will's phone after hours of bad or no reception. This revelation, combined with Will's pervasive paranoia and instability, are all the ingredients needed to tee Will up for his most volatile outburst yet, which is imminent. Amazingly, it won't even be his most violent or his last explosion at the party. While the film has of course been punctuated by numerous moments of heightened emotion and tension and conflict, the discovery of Choi's voicemail is undeniably a massive turning point. It's the event that will lead us towards the film's first climax, or pre-climax, if you will. I just made up a word. I might even call it a false climax, not unlike a false ending in a rock song. We'll discuss that more when it happens, but the idea that this film accomplishes that at all is worth planting early and planting now, especially because of the way Choi's absence is built up, subsequently deflated, and how it forces the film to then regain momentum in a very short amount of time. But for now, in this very specific window, hearing Choi's voice is significant beyond the obvious in that it functionally erases the sincere plea that Tommy just made. What if we'll listen to the voicemail then Tommy approached and they spoke? Maybe that would have put Will on a more even keel and he would have been able to get out of his head a little bit by expressing himself instead of toxically simmering and stewing after his friend has already exited the backyard. But because he hears the voice message after, because he hears it after an entire evening of triggers, discomfort, and suspicion, and not before he entered the house at the film's start, it's almost as if the sheer shock of finally hearing from the person that's been so noticeably absent instantly nukes Tommy's entire appeal. In last week's episode, I included a quote from Andrew Solomon, who described depression as a veil being lifted, as if you're seeing the world for how it really is. That could also be an apt description for Will's discovery of the voicemail, like he's finally seeing his hosts for what he always knew they were. He merely lacked the proof. Will's worldview has been distorted, refracted by grief. And through the lens of Choi's voicemail amid the downplayed chaos of the party, that view has now been magnified, exacerbated, exploded, creating a beam of hostile light that Will intends to weaponize. Is he justified in that weaponization? Or is his being galvanized by Choi merely a tragic coincidence and a petty excuse to finally lash out? Something to think about. Until next week. An 
Invitation to the Invitation is written, produced, and hosted by me, Jim Panola. Original score is by John Panola. Follow us on Twitter at an invitation, no underscores, and follow us on Instagram at invitation to invitation. That's invitation, the number two, invitation, with no underscores. Likewise, email us at invitation to invitation at gmail.com with questions and comments. Special thanks to the filmmakers and to our featured actors this episode. Summer Mastin as Sadie, Ty Kellner as Tommy, and Ryan Smith as Choi. Lastly, special thanks to the Panola family for their support. Please spread the word if you enjoyed this episode, and we'll see you next time.